Gary Schmidt as our keynote speaker today. Gary Schmidt is a professor of English at Calvin University, where he taught for 38 years. In addition to critical literary studies, he writes novels for, for middle grade readers, as well as picture book biographies for younger readers. He is currently working on study of works for children written by artists of color for children and published before 1960. It's fascinating. Would you join me in welcoming Mr. Gary Schmidt? Good morning. First things first, I want to thank you before anything else for all that you have done for my six children who all went through Christian school, who have been deeply, deeply affected by it. For those of you that may have had David, I want to apologize <laughs> and tell you how astonished I am that you're still in the profession. But I should also tell you that when he finished his business degree, he decided that that's not what he wanted. And he went back and he learned how to be a teacher. He teaches in fifth grade in Kentwood now. You can't believe what it's like to go to his classroom and to watch him and to think about what he did to all of you. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Uh, this is the very first time I was here at this event. It was almost 35 years ago. It was PB time, pre-Brenda. Brenda. I came as a newish professor of English at Calvin College, and I came in company with my department chair, Ed Erickson, who was coming to deliver the talk that I'm about to give now. I think one of my strongest introductions to the Reformed Christian world came at that moment. Perhaps some of you were here too, and perhaps you remember it as well. I was sitting in the very far back, and as I remember, the lights were mostly turned off, so we were kind of in darkness, and Ed was up here bathed in light, which probably is appropriate. He began by saying, I wanna ask you one question. And for most of the talk, he held us in suspense. What was the question? And when he finally asked it, it was a killer. And it was this, do you read? That's what he asked. He meant, do you stay immersed in your discipline? Do you go beyond the lesson plans? Do you bring your love of that discipline and your expertise in it? and the way it has taught you to think, do you bring that to your students? Do you read? I think we were all squirming by then. Since the invitation from Brenda to come here this morning, I've been thinking of that morning 35 years ago, of Ed and of his question, and wondering what question I might give you. What single question could I ask of you? You have taught all six of my children and who have been the object of more dinner conversations than you can possibly imagine, as well as the object of prayers from Anne and from me. What question could I ask you? So I'm gonna put the question out here through a story 
that I first encountered through a picture that was tacked onto a Sunday school wall in the old Quaker meeting house on Long Island where my family worshiped. It was a picture of Elijah who was sprawled contentedly on the ground as dark ravens brought bread to feed him while he was hiding out from the evil, evil Ahab and Jezebel who had both become worshipers of Baal and to whom the prophet had predicted a devastating and punishing drought, a prediction that annoyed them more than a little. In the picture, Elijah was reaching up sort of languidly, like he's at some sort of Roman feast. And the birds were flying in from as far away as you can see, there's puffs of pastry in their beaks. I remember that that picture gave me something of a start because I loved the story. I loved the folktale quality of the plot line. I loved the way that the bad guys were being thwarted. All that was great. I did think it was mildly icky to eat flesh and bread from a bird's mouth, but what really did throw me early on in that Sunday school training was this. I wasn't sure that I believed it. I mean, really? Birds bringing in food? And I get the connection, I get it with bread and manna, but in the manna story, the Hebrew host could simply glean the manna from the ground. So why the variation of the birds this time? And why was Elijah really so friendless that he couldn't hide out in like someone's basement? And after all, if he meant to escape from Delilah and be on the lam for a while, why didn't he plan a little bit better? Why didn't he bring like, you know, supplies? I mean, wouldn't you? Would you depend on a bird? And I sat there in the Quaker meeting house faced with this black square at my feet and I wasn't sure what it meant that I didn't believe it. So, almost 60 years later, from that Quaker meeting house, let me read the passage to you now. It's from 1 Kings 17. I'm going to, weigh, or to read it the way I first heard it, the straight King James Version. Some of you may not like that. Uh, tough. <laughs> and the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded, commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there, gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son so that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, and do as thou hast said, 
and make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance? Watch this. And to slay my son. And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up unto a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. It's a great story. It becomes even better if we wipe away the image of the powerful Old Testament prophets, sort of Anglo-Saxony kind of stuff, with the beard and the staff, all the accoutrementia, and we get a sense of what the story gives us. The story that I, of Elijah that I just read to you is preceded by this distressing set of awful chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah. Rehoboam, whose inattentiveness lost the treasures of Solomon, Abijam, who walked in the sins of his father, Basha, who warred with the king of Judah all his days and did evil in the sight of the Lord, Nadab, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, Zimri, who killed the rightful king of Israel and then killed the family of Basha and left him not one that pisseth against the wall, and who also did evil in the sight of the Lord, leading to a suicide. Then Omri, who after a civil war took the throne and, you know, guess what? Did evil in the sight of the Lord. And now finally comes Ahab, son of Omri, who, not surprisingly, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Into this horror show is introduced Elijah, who is not brought in like a great and mighty prophet, He's simply introduced as Elijah the Tishbite, which was of the inhabitants of Gilead. In other words, no one particularly. And is this no one particularly who speaks directly to King Ahab, predicting the punishment of the drought, and then skedaddles for all he's worth 
with no time to gather supplies, I suppose, to hide out. He knows what the kings of Israel and Judah are like, all that evil in the sight of the Lord. Who can blame him for skedaddling? And so to the passage we have just read. There are three parts to it, as if it were a good reformed sermon. Every one of those parts says the same thing, but with growing intensity. And in each one of them, God says this to Elijah. I'm going to sustain you. And I'm going to do it in ways that will amaze you. Watch. First, God sustains Elijah with his basic needs, food and water. Hiding by a brook seems natural enough. The amazement comes with the birds. Food is brought to him every morning and every evening. It is not a miracle that Elijah asked for. The miracle comes completely and totally through God's grace and through his command over the natural world. But one has to ask here, as day after day after day goes by, did it become routine? A routine miracle? Is there such a thing? But there is a drought after all, and eventually the brook dries up. Again, a natural enough detail in the story. And so we had the second story. How will God sustain Elijah now? He does it by creating community. He brings Elijah to a widow who herself is in distress. When Elijah finds her, she's preparing her last meal since the drought has destroyed everything. After this meal, she knows she and her son will die like her husband before her. Imagine this, is this scene, please. She's about to cook the last meal she will ever eat, and then she and her son will die. There are no alternatives here. And when he sees the widow, Elijah is actually a complete jerk to her. Hey, get me a drink of water. And you know, while you're at it, bring me some bread. Oh, and I get that you think your son and you are about to die, but I really want some cake before you do. One imagines that she would spit into his face, but the widow does exactly what he asks. And because of that, the cruise of oil and the barrel of meal never empty. In other words, in sustaining Elijah, the widow is sustaining herself and her son. The miracle has come to her. And back to the amazement at the way God sustains. The text takes pains to give us the geography of the widow's residence. It indicates first that Elijah has gone a terribly long way. Again, something that seems natural enough since he wants to escape from Ahab. But the place also indicates that the widow is a Gentile, the one who, when she first meets Elijah, acknowledges the God of Israel, the Lord thy God, she says. Note that she does not say the Lord our God or the Lord my God. It's the Lord thy God. And now after these first two stories, look at what Elijah has seen, that God commands the natural world that God will provide his basic needs, that God has brought him into a community in which he will be upheld, even if it is not the community he expected, that God will bless those who uphold him. Quite a lot for a new and frightened Tishbite prophet running from a powerful and hateful king and queen who tend to do evil in the sight of the Lord. But he seems to take it all in stride Maybe after many days of this amazing provision, it kind of becomes sort of old hat. 
but there is more. The widow is forthright and willing, but she must know, she must know, that this is the guy Ahab and Jezebel are searching for, and that they will not be kind to anyone who's going to take him in. But she has run this risk to both herself and her son anyway, in order to sustain Elijah. That's something. And so the third story. Her son dies anyway. She is in despair. And immediately she turns to Elijah as a prophet who has come to her not only to be sustained, but she now thinks to punish her for some sin by killing her son. And she is angry. Wouldn't you be? What has she given except grace? What has she given except obedience? And this is the response of Elijah's God, really? Elijah's response is poignant. He says, and you can imagine him whispering this, give me thy son. He takes her dead son from her bosom and he carries him to the loft where he is hiding. And there he accuses God of injustice. Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn? It's the also that's so interesting. He blames God not just for the trouble that has come down to the widow. He blames God for the trouble that has come down upon him, just for doing what God told him to do. It seems like this might be a turning point in Elijah's life. Is this really how God acts? Can you love and trust a God who behaves this way? Have you ever asked that question? But then comes this. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Simple words, but the most beautiful words in all of scripture. The Lord hears and the Lord responds. And Elijah, who it seems has forgotten what he had been learning all along because of his old grief, learns the lesson again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. No. God is not unjust, Elijah learns again. God sustains. He sustains in amazing, unexpected ways. The birds, pretty cool. The cruise of oil, Pretty cool. But resurrection? Resurrection can never be routine. Resurrection can never be old hat. It is always amazing. And now to the point. After all this, after Elijah the frightened Tishbite prophet has been hiding all this time, after he has seen all the amazing things that God has done, the whole point of all of this sustenance comes when the widow responds to Elijah as he returns her living child to her bosom and she says to him, now by this, by this, I know, I know that thou art a man of God, no longer your God. You are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, not thy Lord, the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. There it is. It's taken three years of being sustained and it has led to this. A frightened prophet hears exactly what he needs to hear. 
and is the widow's last act of sustaining. You are a man of God. The word of the Lord in thy mouth is true. Elijah knows now who God is, and she does too. The Lord listens. The Lord responds. The Lord is truth. And it is immediately after that, and only immediately after that, after these lessons of three hard years, after the amazement of resurrection, it is only after that that the Lord tells Elijah this, go, show yourself to Ahab. Really? You've been in hiding for three years, and now is the time to show thyself. Elijah could never have done this before the birds, before the cruise of oil, before the miracle of resurrection. And Elijah says, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. And that encounter becomes the contest between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, one of the greatest scenes of 1 Kings, and the end of the drought, and the affirmation by all the people that the God who sustained Elijah all this time for years the God who sustained him by controlling the natural world, by establishing community, the God who provided resurrection, the God who listens, the God who has led Elijah to become the man God intended because of the way he has been sustained, that God. He is the Lord. The text here suggests at the center of all of this is the quality of amazement. The birds with their food, the miracle of the oil, the resurrection from death to life. Who could not be stunned? Who in that moment could not have been amazed and changed forever by their amazement? At how God identifies himself in the world, how he displays his infinitely imaginative self, how he works his will. Who could not be amazed? If the first miracles were dulled by routine, the last cannot be so dull. Carrying a living child down the stairs, putting him in the arms of a widow, imagine the scene. So here's the question I want to give you today. Are you still amazed by the ways that God identifies himself through the discipline that you have embraced? Are you still amazed by it? Are you amazed by the miracle of the ways our infinitely intricate bodies work? Are you amazed by the clarity and precision of a geometric proof? Are you amazed by the wondrous simplicity and complexity of an atomic particle? Are you amazed by the loveliness of paint, by the beauty of a musical chord? Are you amazed by the way a narrative can invoke truth? Are you amazed by the ways that the exploration of the past can clarify the present? Are you amazed by the ways in which our study of the physical world from the smallest stone to the most distant galaxy suggests order and meaning and design? Are you still amazed by your discipline? Are you amazed despite the deadening of routine and administrative responsibilities and major and minor annoyances and grading and standardized tests? Are you still amazed by what God can show you through the discipline he has trained you to see with? Here's John Berryman in his 11 Addresses to the Lord. 
He wrote this in a time of difficulty in crafting his own work. He writes this to, directly to God. Whatever your end may be, accept my amazement. May I stand until death forever at attention for any your least instruction or enlightenment. I even feel sure you will assist me again, master of insight and of beauty. Accept my amazement. A year ago last May, I was in the graduation at Hanlon Prison in Ionia County, Michigan, where I taught for Tuesday nights for four years. Hanlon is a high security prison. It takes 45 very invasive minutes to get through the security. Most of the guys I taught were lifers. They were graduating that day into an associate's degree. I began to work at Hanlon because of John Rotman, whom some of you may know. The year before, I had lost my wife to cancer. And between then and the day that John called me, I had canceled all speaking and writing gigs like this one. There no longer seemed to be much point. But John called to ask if I would come to speak to 28 guys who had read some of my books. And I told him, no, no, I'm just not doing this anymore. And John, because he is a wise and devout guy and somewhat forthright, says to me, Gary, it's been a year. It's time to get back in the game. I was furious. I was beside myself with anger. How could anyone dare to say such a thing to me? But I also trusted John, and so I went. I sat through the orientation at the prison, which was filled with all sorts of dire warnings. Never turn your back on these guys. Never let them get behind you. Never let them touch you. Never touch them. Never use anything but their last names. Never, never, never let your panic button leave your side. And then on a cold January night, I went to the prison. The guys were late. They had been in a lockdown all day because the guards had been finding so many knives in their cells. They had spent their day in their underwear, and supper that night had been a piece of bread with a slice of American cheese on it, along with a swath of mustard. That's it. When I heard that, I thought these guys would come into the room with me, mad and angry as all get out. But when the first guy came in, his name was David, he looked at me and said, you can't believe what a blessing it is that you are here tonight. And that is the first thing a lifer forever in prison, said to me, you can't believe what a blessing it is that you are here tonight. The talk and discussion was supposed to go 45 minutes. It went two hours until one of the guards knocked on the glass. And when we had to leave, one of the guys, his name was John Shank. Shank, no kidding. <laughs> he, he asked me, so how often do you get in the word? I was a little bit surprised. It's not so often that you're asked that question by someone in prison. And I decided to be totally honest. I told him about Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed and how he was approached by a conquered minister who said, Henry, have you made your peace with God? And Thoreau replied, I wasn't aware that we'd quarreled. And then I tried to tell him about Anne, but I could hardly speak it. And as it turned out, the chaplain had already told him and they knew, and I said, God and I have quarreled. And they looked at me in perfect understanding, 28 lifers. 
we all knew what it was to quarrel with God. We'd all done it. Some of us, I, was still doing it. But they weren't done amazing me. We have something for you, said John Shank. I was more than a little surprised again. What could they possibly have for me? I mean, really, what could it possibly be? They all left their seats and they came to the front of the room. They surrounded me, front and back. They were all touching me. I won't even tell you what I was thinking was about to happen. <laughs> and meanwhile, I had left my panic button in my coat, mostly because I was ashamed to wear it in front of them. It looked like I was afraid. So I left it on the foot in the coat. You know what they gave me? They prayed for me. These guys, murderers and rapists and drug dealers, forever in prison, who were now surrounding me, held me and prayed for me, sustaining me. Can you know what it is like having a murderer pray for you because you've lost so much? Accept my amazement, said John Ferryman. There are times, you all know this, as a writer and a teacher, when you may feel discouraged. How can you know if anyone is even listening? At this work, alone with your typewriter, or alone in front of your room, maybe your border collie is watching, but otherwise you're pretty much alone, even in a room of kids sometimes. Is all this sweat worth it? And then the Lord sends a letter and tells you to shut up. Just get on with the good work sitting there in your desk. Here's a letter from a kiddo named Ethan. I got this letter on a cold and dark day last winter when I was lonely and hating being lonely and wondering if I should just be done with all this writing stuff. Here's the letter. Dear Mr. Schmidt, I like your style of writing because you use a lot of beautiful. I think about that a lot, how you use a lot of beautiful. I also like how you use personification. Here's one I wrote, and this is the line. The wind tapping me on the shoulder as it felt as cold as a ghost. And then here's the last line of the letter. Your books make me feel like I can do anything. Sincerely, Ethan. Who would not get back to his typewriter and his desk or in front of his room after the Lord had that letter sent to your mailbox? Who would not? Lord, accept my amazement. Or this. A decade ago, before Anne passed, I began to feel the symptoms of a heart malady that has killed or severely damaged every single male Schmidt in my family before he has reached the age of 58. Every single one eventually died from it. I couldn't walk around the fields at home. I couldn't make it up a flight of stairs. I couldn't make it through a 75-minute class. I figured, okay, I knew it was coming. It's been a good run and probably it was done now. It's what Anne and I had expected. We'd even joked about her long widowhood. 
just before the heart surgery that I had to submit to with all of medical humiliations and anxieties, I quoted some lines from the Battle of Malden to Anne. Ihr shall the Herde, ihr the Sonne, Maud shall the Mere, there Megan little. And I told her not to be afraid. She reminded me that, she had, that we had all of Neeland Avenue Church praying for us. And if there ever was a warrior church, it is Neeland Avenue Church. I felt those prayers. I really did. And when I said I mean this, I felt them physically. I can't explain it any other way to you. I felt them as I fell asleep in the cold operating room, surrounded by a lot of humming machines. Those prayers surrounding me. And when I woke up, and by the way, I did wake up, I knew where I was. I knew that my heart had been taken out and put back in. I knew that the humming machines were gone. And the only thing I could hear, and I heard it loudly and distinctly, and I can't explain this to you either, but I'm not making it up. I heard the sound of a hymn that I have loved for a long time. Come Christians, join to sing. It was right there, right there in my ears. The one problem was that the hymn was being played by a brass band, which sound I am not particularly fond of. But you know, you can't have everything, I suppose. I felt those prayers. I knew I was woven together in my church. And if I ever have doubted my faith, if I doubt it sometimes even now, I think of this, that though that day I had had my chest cracked open like a walnut and my ribs broken and tendons and muscles pushed away and cut and my heart taken out of my body and manhandled, I only took a single Tylenol for the pain that first night and only because the nurse demanded it and I never used another gram of medication. Lord, accept my amazement. These disciplines that we've studied, they've been the way that we have trained ourselves to see the world that God sustains and through which he reveals himself to us. Are you still amazed by what you see, by what you hear, by what you experience in that discipline? For me, I open up Beowulf and read the opening lines, and I marvel at how the sounds of a language long gone can still impart meaning. What? We gardena in Yerk Dagam oft ye heareth, who Athalingas Ellen Framadon. I don't need to tell you what Ellen Framadon means. You can just hear it. Or I take out a Hopkins poem and watch him go and see a hawk one morning and declare that this is a world most worthy the winning, and I'm changed by reading that. Or I open up Bleak House, and I look at how at the end of the death of Little Joe, Dickens breaks every single literary rule. He destroys the point of view, and he comes right out of the novel and says about Little Joe's death, this, speaking directly to Queen Victoria, not to the reader, directly to the queen, dead, your majesty, dead, your lords and ladies, dead your right reverence and your wrong reverence and dying thus around us every day. What words can do? Lord, accept our amazement. So there's my question. Are you still amazed? And if there are times when you're not, then perhaps this will help. Imagine a loud, very loud brass band playing the tune and listen to these words. 
come, Christians, join to sing. Alleluia, amen. Loud praise to Christ our King. Alleluia, amen. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia, amen. Are you hearing the trumpets? Come, lift your hearts on high. Alleluia, amen. Let praises fill the sky. Alleluia, amen. He is our guide and friend. To us he'll condescend. His love shall never end. Alleluia, amen. So praise yet our Christ again. Alleluia, amen. Life shall not end the strain. Alleluia, amen. On heaven's blissful shore, his goodness will adore, singing forevermore, Alleluia, Amen. Folks, please pray with me now. Lord, accept our amazement, accept our joy in you, accept our goodness at the work you have given to us, accept our gratitude at the ways you put us in front of our students. Keep us from the dullness of routine. Keep us awake and watching. And keep us in the palm of your hand as you have promised to do and ever aware of the presence of your Holy Spirit whose presence is the evidence of your love. Bless those in this room and help us to be always acutely grateful for the ways you have taught us to show others how to love what we ourselves have been trained to love. Lord, accept, always accept our amazement. Alleluia. Amen. Thank you so much, folks.